This is an interview with Mr. Handel Davis in Woking on Thursday, the 24th of January, 1980. You obviously were in the centre of things in a very, very interesting era. I noticed you're head of, head of aerodynamics yes, at RAE, 42 mm. to 46. Um, could we I start... A little later than that, as a matter of fact. Was it? Uh, ah. uh, I went back to the RAE just after the war. It was really 46 to 51. Yes. Just as a, you know, that was the time. And in 42 to 46, I was very much involved in it, but in a different place. Fine. Um, I think probably to start at the beginning, can you briefly describe <coughs> how um, the problems of compressibility and, and the theories of Ernst Mach first came into your life? I suppose almost yes. when you were an engineering student, did you come yes, to Yes, uh, well, yes. I, I uh, knew of the problems of compressibility, of course, when I uh, right back in days of uh, engineering training university. So, uh, yes, but of course uh, it was very much in the realms of uh, theory at that time, as far as man flying is concerned. Though, of course, compressibility has been uh, a factor long, long before that. Uh, any bullet, of course, flies at uh, supersonic speed or shell and so on, so that uh, shock waves were well known, and their characteristics well known uh, uh, long before flying. Uh, the crack you get when a shell goes over. Mm. Everybody who fought in the First World War, and in the Second World War for that matter, is familiar with this, uh, the passage of the shockwave in front of a, of a shell, mm. especially mm. a naval shell, as you can hear often. What, yeah, because they were high calibre? Or? Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure why. Mm. It's just uh, uh, happens that uh, uh, I've many, many times heard the sonic crack from a naval shell but as it happens, although I've, you know, I've experienced being under uh, land guns, I've never actually heard the crack from those. I don't know why that mm. is at all. I don't, uh, well, that's a sideline, that's a mm. digression. Mm. Yeah, but it's just to underline the fact that uh, uh, a lot was known about, the, uh, about supersonic aerodynamics, um, theoretically, finally. Yes. Uh, except that the science of ballistics, of course, had done a good deal of experimental work. Could I just check? You, you'd like to me to say everything that comes to my mind? Uh, I, I, I think so. I will prompt you. I have because, got uh, plenty of time. It's, it's, it's up to you. Well, luckily, today was a good day, actually. Fine, from this fine. It's the only day this week I have. So. Uh, I think it's your in, in involvement at, uh, yes. at Farnborough. Right, right. um, you okay. know, I've, I've talked to people like Philip Lucas and, yes. and so on, who uh, were telling me about the earlier sort of pitch-down yes. problems on the Typhoon, for instance. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, well, I was slightly involved in that, too, because uh, it happened that my job during that, during the typhoon period, uh, uh, in 1941, I uh, went to work under Lord Beaverbrook in the, uh, what was it called, Ministry of Aviation in those days. And very soon after going there, a uh, the job I got was to try and work very closely with the Royal Air Force to try and get the best out of the aircraft they were flying. And that's really what first got me well, I was always interested in flying, but it was the time when I first actually got really actively involved. And the typhoon was one of the problems which we came mm. up against. Mm. Uh, the typhoon and, and the tempest, uh, too. There were, although those aircraft were flying well below the speed of sound, of course, they were only flying at, uh, what would it be, 0.5 of the speed of sound, mm. or 0.6 of the speed of sound. There were compressibility effects on them. At altitude? Yes, mm. yes. Mm. So they, uh, and uh, that was the uh, f 
uh, the first major encounter, oh well no, that's not quite true of course, the, the first real encounter with compressibility effects was, uh, uh, arose from the fact that uh, as the horsepower of the Merlin engine was increased and indeed went from the Merlin to the Griffin and the speeds of the Spitfire and the Hurricane began to creep up from 350 which miles per hour which is where they were at the beginning of the war, to 450, which was where the Spitfire was at the end of the war. By that time, um, the, propellers, uh, the propeller tips were going up something very close to the speed of sound. And in fact, we had at that point, we had reached the limit of uh, speed for propeller-driven aircraft, really, virtually the limit, around 450, maybe conceivably 500 miles an hour simply because that the tip of the propeller is going faster than the aircraft is going, of course, because it's not only moving forward, but yeah. moving around yeah. as well. And consequently there was that, and, and the result of that was that propeller efficiency got uh, stuck at about that uh, time, and uh, if, you, if you try to go above 450 miles per hour, propeller efficiency dropped and you didn't get any more speed. Mm. So we'd encountered it. Then, then we encountered it on the Typhoon and the Tempest, and, of course, on the Spitfire, because at that time the RAE was engaged in uh, uh, di doing dive tests with Spitfires. Uh, and very, some very outstanding work was uh, done at that time in the RAE, flying the Spitfire up to the point at which they lost the elevator control. This was Martindale's work. Martindale, that's yeah. right. That's mm -hmm. right. Lost the <coughs> and that was very outstanding and highly dangerous very dangerous work, obviously. <laughs> mm. They got into the regime where uh, the elevator effectiveness became uh, zero and there was a pitch down as well, and there was no way by which the aircraft could then be pulled out of the dive other than by waiting for the altitude to decrease, and consequently the Mach number fell, and you got back into the elevator effectiveness region. Mm. Mm. And many tests were done, and the Spitfire went up to Mach 0.9 in those days, actually. Mm. And it was soon after that that I came on the scene in Farnborough, where I was jolly lucky. I really look back at that and think how incredibly lucky I was, because uh, um, when the war ended, of course, my particular job trying to trying to make the best of the aircraft the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, for that matter, had uh, come to an end. And um, the job I got was to come back to Farnborough to. Uh, uh, not immediately to take charge of the aeronautic flight testing because Sir Warren Morgan was the head of, the, of that division when I went there, but very soon after I went uh, I became head of that organization and it was one, probably the best time of my life from about 1946 to 51. And that was the crucial period, of mm. course, the transonic barrier was uh, penetrated during yes. that period. The, the incredible thing I've, I've learned is that the um, aerofoil sections of the Spitfire <coughs> yes. uh, were so much more efficient, in other words they had a much higher critical mm. mount number mm. than, than the first generations of jets, the, yes. the Vampire and the Meteor. That is an astonishing thing, I, I, uh, yes, uh, yes I, I mentioned that in my own uh, World War Orwell Wright Memorial Lecture last in December actually, because uh, I'd forgotten that to be quite honest, although I was involved not in industry at that time, but in the research side, because at the time when the Spitfire was uh, being uh, developed rather than designed, uh, I was in Farnborough doing wind tunnel testing, and uh, consequently I knew at that time that the uh, wing section of the Spitfire was uh, very suitable for, supersonic, for transonic and supersonic speed. 
Of course, it had no advantage for the speed at which the Spitfire went. The, the section of the Spitfire had no advantage at the, uh, mm. the 350-450 miles mm. an hour that it went at. Uh, but however, it, it's true, it was a very thin wind, and we, we went away from that mm. subsequently with the Typhoon and the Tempest, and even the Hunter and the Swift had wings which weren't quite as thin, or well, they, they were virtually the same as the Spitfire, mm -hmm. but certainly no, no more advanced. There was a lot of chance, you know, that's yeah. a very extraordinary thing for Mitchell to have done, uh, to have gone for that. He must have had some sort of instinctive feeling that as time w went on further, and if the Spitfire and, and I, it developed, as indeed it did, into this spiteful, you know, into the mm -hmm. jet mm -hmm. versions, mm -hmm. that the uh, uh, compressibility effects would demand a, a thin mm -hmm. wing. Because there was no advantage, in fact, there was a positive disadvantage in the thin wing of the Spitfire for the speeds at which the Spitfire, the, th the Spitfire had much thinner wing, wing than the Hurricane, of course. But it wasn't a bad low speed handling aeroplane, was no, it? No, 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 it wasn't, no, no. No, the, no, the, the, the disadvantage of the thin wing is the structure weight, of course. Yes, yes, yes. You know, structure weight, if you make a thin wing, it's, mm. uh, the, it's more difficult to, to get the structure weight uh, mm. Uh, mm. down to the same level. Uh, you know, if you make a 10% thick wing as the Spitfire was. It's jolly difficult to... Oh, mind you, they succeeded despite that. Uh, they did succeed, but if mm. two precisely similar levels of structural design were done, then the thinner wing would, would be heavier. No mm. question mm. that. However, that again, that's a digression, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's can, can I go... This, this particular wartime era and, and the testing of the Spitfire yes. farm I'm particularly interested in, mm. um, can you uh, remember the sort of chicken and egg sequence of this. I mean, was this program embarked upon because there were operational problems, or was it embarked upon purely for pure research, because the Spitfire happened to be a handy aeroplane in which to investigate these problems? Well, it, well, it was primarily the latter. The, uh, uh, it was primarily because of the fact that the uh, uh, chap on the technical side who uh, uh, was in charge of this at that time was a chap named Ron Smilt, who eventually went to America and finally became chief scientist of uh, Lockheed Corporation. Uh, and he was uh, uh, very interested. Uh, first of all, he worked a good deal uh, on the on the Whittle, first Whittle jet aircraft, and indeed it was under his small team that the first flights of the jet Whittle, of the Whittle jet aircraft were performed, were carried out. Uh, and uh, he was very interested and had uh, studied uh, supersonic aerodynamics and knew of the problems which would arise in the transonic era and thought it would be a good preliminary effort to take the best aircraft which existed, the aircraft which you'd think would have the best characteristics as you push the Mach number up, and that would be a good thing to have a go at seeing uh, if we could learn something by diving those. And uh, by a fortunate coincidence, Martindale happened to be there at the same time, and he was uh, not only a very courageous chap, but also a very intelligent uh, chap. And the two together really um, did um, pursue the thing up to uh, um, Mach point nine in uh, demonstrated something which we knew, of course, beforehand, that the uh, elevators would become ineffective and that they would regain their effectiveness as you got lower down. He's a very strong man, Winkle Brown was telling me, in the absence of powered controls. Yes, that's true useful. too. Martin Dale, you mean? Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes, he was. Yeah. Yes, mm. yes. That's right. So that, that was uh, uh, that was quite a a, uh, a good sort of 
first introduction to indicate how severe the problems were, because mm. the Spitfire showed beyond any doubt whatsoever mm. that uh, there was no chance of, of penetrating the uh, uh, sonic barrier with that sort of aircraft, despite the uh, thin mm. wing of the Spitfire. Mm. Um, and there are various reasons for that, the propeller being one of the most, most yes. important. Yeah. Now, the lessons you learned from this program, they, they didn't specifically read across to any follow-up program as such. I mean, the Meteor and the Vampire being the first two operational mm. aircraft to <coughs> um, were in fact a step backwards as far as wing design was concerned, weren't they? Well, I wouldn't say, no, I don't, I don't think it would be right to say they were a step backwards because uh, um, the designers of the, uh, of the Meteor and the Vampire uh, knew that uh, um, with the engines which were available at the time and the state of, uh, of the art of aerodynamics, uh, the speed of the uh, uh, Meteor and the Vampire would in any case be uh, limited to uh, something like Mach 0.7 or something like that. And uh, you recall, of course, that at that time the, uh, um, the idea of using swept wings hadn't, uh, uh, hadn't occurred mm. to, I didn't read to the British and the Americans, it had occurred to the Germans, but not to the mm. British and the Americans. And uh, therefore, I think the, uh, the design of the wing sections on the Meteor and the Vampire were, not, uh, were certainly not a step backward from the uh, Spitfire. They were designed uh, to have good characteristics at speeds up to about 0.7 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, of course, they were flown, and indeed subsequently the uh, uh, Spitfire, the early Spitfire work, uh, was followed up um, as soon as we began to uh, um, get, to, as soon as the first of the swept wing aircraft came. The F-86 was the first aircraft, eventually to be uh, dived up to Mach 1, and that was really the first English mm -hmm. to fly at the speed of sound in a dive was uh, Beaumont in an F-86 uh, mm. and he did that uh, in America, he probably... Yes indeed, he told me about it. He's probably, he's a very modest chap, I don't mm. know to what extent I did, that was quite a, uh, an achievement on uh, yes. his part and, and then we did a lot of that of course, by that time, by the time that was being done, I mm. was back at Farnborough running mm. the mm. space maze and so we followed that up by uh, diving the um, uh, it wasn't the Hunter, the, the prototype of the, uh, of the Hunter, the, the Lim 54, I think it was called. Was yes, it? yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the Lim 54. It wasn't exactly a prototype of the Hunter, it was an experimental aircraft. It was a development of the Seahawk, was Yes, it, it was. Uh, the 1052, yes. was it? 1052, 1052, yeah. that's from, mm. that, was, mm. uh, that was it. And we pushed that up uh, uh, just beyond the Sea of Sound and... Uh, on and, and that did go supersonic, did it? Yes, it did oh, actually. Oh. Um, in in dives, even with a straight tail and uh, no yeah. power. Controls. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, I got I got the number wrong again. That that particular aircraft was the straight winged one, wasn't it? Uh, it was swept wings and straight tail. Ah, and then the 1081 yes. was all swept. Sorry, my, yeah. my yeah. memory is fading. It's only I've been reading all yeah. this up. Yeah. Right, right, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. right, right. Well, we didn't get that. We didn't, we didn't. get that up no. the speed of sound. Um, but the other by by the by 19 what would it be 48 I suppose or 49 um, almost any of the swept wing aircraft with swept wing tails in the right mm. section could be got up to the speed of sound but <laughs> there again it was still a hazardous business as indeed was shown by what happened on the Swift because uh, I'm jumping a bit on now but uh, yeah, right, okay. um, the Hunter and the Swift were two very rather similar aircraft but um, 
uh, we observed actually right early on, right on the uh, du during the test flying, flying by Mike Lisko and Dave Morgan mm -hmm. of the uh, uh, Spiteful, that uh, it had a characteristic which um, um, the hunter did not have to the same extent, and that is that when you got up to high Mach number, uh, you got a wing drop, and also, uh, strangely enough, there was the initial pitch down and then quite a violent pitch up, especially in a, in a, in a pull out. If you pulled out, mm. the pitch up increased. You've doubtless heard that from some of the others mm. who talk. And that was very serious. Problem and resulted eventually in the, uh, uh, the, the um, aircraft being um, uh, rejected for service with the Royal Air Force. The Swift, as you know, the Hunter was mm. passed in the Royal Air Force. In the, and I jumped quite a lot there because the rejection was uh, in 1955, mm. by which time I was, for unfortunately enough by that time, to be the Chief Superintendent at Boston Down. So I was the chap who had to sign the document which cleared the thing, so I was the chap who was responsible for not clipping it, yes, yeah. uh, on the basis of, of course, the test flying which was uh, done there. But I mentioned that really... Why did it behave in that way? Or did you ever pin it down to...? Yes, yes, well, d quite definitely. In fact, uh, it's quite a story, that, because um, the, um, uh, the experts, the expert aeronamicists, had really said uh, very early on, during the prototype flight testing, that the um, wingtip, uh, uh, the wingtip of the Swift, unlike the Spitfire, uh, continued the you know the thickness chord ratio of these wings decreased from the root to the tip, and the Swift didn't de decrease quite as much as the Hunter, and also the section, the the actual wing section was not so well designed for high Mach number and high lift, which was the condition was the condition when the feature was bad. <coughs> uh, the Swift was not really the same as the Hunter in that respect. And, I must confess, it was partly by chance that Sidney Cam had got it right, I, I think. Uh, here I'm expressing a personal opinion. Sure. Uh, Sidney Cam did have, uh, one of the, again, he's another chap who had this instinct. <laughs> so, well, whatever the reason, he actually did get it right. And the so there were tip stalls, were they? Yes, yeah. uh, there were Mach stalls. At the tips. Tips, stalls at the tip, but high Mach mm. number mm. and high, high lift. Um, and wing fences didn't carry it? No. No, wing fences improved it but didn't cure it, mm -hmm. and in fact nothing would have cured it other than a redesign of the, t of the tip, and that's why the aircraft was uh, uh, rejected. Mm -hmm. And it was no, nobody's fault actually, it, uh, in those days we were working in the dark, you know, and, the, and the hunter was, I think was lucky and the swift, and the swift was unlucky. I, I, I from an engineering standpoint I find this terribly ironic because the swift was a direct descendant of the Spitfire, yes, which yes. had had the super, super yes. wing. Yes. Um, yes. The hunter. Yes. I don't think you can call it. It was a direct descendant only by having a oh. common designer from so the Hurricane. The Hurricane was, was a brick by comparison, the shape yeah. of the wing. No, Sidney Cam, when he came to design the Hunter, uh, he based them on the um, those two experimental aircraft. Mm. Uh, but uh, but it was really de a new design. It was really a new design. And there were other problems, of course. And the illustration was the uh, the. Uh, gun firing problems, which the Hunter mm. had, that was a different thing, when you fired the guns, the, mm. the engine blew out. Mm. <laughs> mm. So, uh, um, it was not free of trouble, but that was curable. Yes, uh, yeah. was not. But uh, going back, really, uh, when we came to uh, then finding that we were able to push the swept wing aircraft, 
up to the uh, speed of sound without too much adverse effect. They retained their elevator effectiveness because the wings were the right section and the tailplane was the right section, and the three pack, of course, was giving a mm. favourable <coughs> favourable effect. And so they uh, uh, they were all right. And uh, it was only when we uh, um, came to uh, unfortunately get deflected onto the thought of of gaining uh, more benefit by means of a tailless aircraft. New, the DH-108, the Swallow, mm. was designed. And in that, uh, Geoffrey de Havilland was killed, and I, unfortunately two of our test pilots in Farmer were killed afterwards. Mm. I, Looking back at it now, I don't really think we should have perhaps pursued that uh, that line of uh, investigation, we should have we should have recognised earlier the fact that uh, at this in the state of the art at that time, a tailless aircraft at that time was not a suitable device for trying to push into the transonic uh, speed. Why, why was it uh, so? It, it's interesting because there was a parallel development in the states of the Northrop X4. I mean, was was the, the idea of building an airplane without a tail to reduce? Uh, induced drag. Yes, to do, to reduce uh, well, not, not so much induced drag, to reduce the drag. You know. Overall, profile and induced. Profile and induced yes, drag. Yes, yes. Doing away with the tailplane. Yes, that great. And and there was a uh, school of thought both in this country and in America, mm. which strongly felt that we had to go to the absolute uh, best aerodynamic uh, solution that we could, with the lowest drag, highest lift drag ratio, if you like. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, so we we attached a lot of importance to uh, um, uh, to a swept uh, to a swept wave, particularly bearing in mind that we needed sweep back for mm. the uh, for the compressibility effect. And if you have sweep back, then you then it was fairly easy to do without a tail. Yes, quite because yes. a swept back aircraft is what you want if you're going to have a tail section. Sure, it's also what you want. If you want low compressibility, so the the attraction, the, the mm. basic inherent mm. attraction, was quite considerable. But unfortunately, uh, what was happening was that um, in the transonic speed range, um, the longitudinal damping of the aircraft mm. decreased. The elevator effectiveness was reducing, though not going to zero, and the uh, damping. You know, when an when an aircraft uh, normally, if an aircraft uh, is in subsonic flight and it ta takes a pitch like that, then apart from the stability, bringing it back to its normal trim position, the, the tailplane also produces a, a damping effect, mm. so it doesn't oscillate like that. Mm. Uh, so we're simplifying a bit, but yeah. uh, I mean, well, um, a tailless aircraft has less of that sort of stability, less damping of the oscillation, in any case, even at subsonic speeds. At supersonic speeds, that, that went down still further, and mm. in fact went to virtually zero. And consequently, the the H108, the Swallow, had this oscillation mm. effect mm. at uh, mm. transonic speeds. Was well, the, the centre of lift movement through the the um, is it the MA mean aerodynamic course? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Much more savage in that era. Yes, it is. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yes. yes. It's at that point that the movement takes place. Yes. Yes. Although the it, the movement of the central pressure was not what was uh, causing the uh, the difficulty mm. on the 108, mm. where it was the damping problem. Yes. Um, 
And then, of course, yeah, that was the, all this was happening between uh, 19, I suppose, between 1947 and 1950, mm. about mm. Everybody was, uh, by that time, engaged in the uh, effort to uh, uh, try and see what was needed design, to design a truly supersonic aircraft, an aircraft capable of supersonic speed and level flight. And in Farnborough, the uh, experts there, and in the companies too, but I think that during this period, the uh, the lead was really in, in Farnborough, the leadership mm -hmm. of the actual basic aerodynamics mm -hmm. design was in Farnborough. And uh, um, the chaps who were working in this field, I, uh, we were all in aerodynamics department, but uh, these were the theoretical aerodynamicists, worked out a design for a supersonic aircraft with very thin wings, that was the secret of it really, mm -hmm. and the sweep back. Uh, and uh, that was the thing which eventually became the lightning, as a matter of fact, but at the time yes, when this was yes. being done, and this was around 1948-49, mm -hmm. Uh, the uh, design was a purely, purely paper design. Mm. What about the M52 though? Were you involved in that unhappy period? Yes, the M52, the miles. The miles the one, yes. Yes, um, yes. Can, can you yes. tell me anything on the, on the yes. inside? Well, so okay, uh, yes. Yes, I'm glad because you that, I mean, that, that strikes me as such a tragic point in time. Yes. Uh, would you, did you think that it could have been a viable aeroplane like the Bell XS1? Or would it have been hopelessly uh, underpowered? For the job. I don't think the M52 itself, as it was being proposed at that, that time, would have been uh, uh, a purely personal point. Sure. You know this is a very controversial, mm. very controversial mm. really, and you mm. have wide differences of views among experts and I don't uh, try to claim any special thing for my view except for the fact that uh, many of us were involved in it at the time. Um, it's a complicated story because, uh, and, and indeed the controversy is very complicated because I'm sure you have uh, um, come across the fact or you know the fact that uh, uh, at that time there was a controversy whether we should push forward uh, rapidly with manned flight, with manned supersonic flight and build an aeroplane and fly it or whether we should do, do, do an extensive program of uh, model testing in yeah. tunnels and in uh, and in rocket-propelled, um, radio-controlled models. And there's an important point to make here, and, uh, and that is that during, at that time, uh, it wasn't possible that nobody had found how to design a wind tunnel which operated in the transonic range. So you could do wind tunnel tests up to 0.8 Mach, uh, or you could do one wind tunnel tests for 1.3 upwards, but you couldn't really do wind, there were no wind tunnel tests which uh, uh, were capable of doing measurements in that range in between. So the, the only alternatives were you either built the aircraft and flew it, uh, or you did it with radio controlled models. And the decision was made actually to have a, a phase of uh, radio controlled models. And that was one of the factors which uh, were present in rejecting the M52 at the time wasn't the only factor though. The M52, first of all, Miles was a small company, small firm. Uh, secondly, you got the right thing, it was underpowered. The development of the, uh, of the uh, neither the development nor the, of the engine, nor the uh, uh, development of, more important, the development of the intakes, the air intakes for the engine had gone 
far enough to ensure that uh, that could have been done. What was required at that time was a concentration of uh, the best people we had in the aerodynamic and structural and design field uh, to uh, design and build a uh, manned aircraft, and that could have been done uh, much earlier than the uh, than the lightning was uh, was done, because uh, uh, around Britain all the knowledge was there to do it. Uh, the Americans decided, as you know, to go all out for uh, Dan Bay. Uh, it was underlining that, that they faced the, the problem of the engine, making a turbine engine suitable and uh, the air intake suitable, by not using a turbine. They used a rocket. In the X-1, they did it with a rocket, and that was a very straightforward way, way of doing it. Uh, uh, the, so, so uh, just avoid most of the problems is what they did, but, but uh, by doing that they were able to explore in flight the aerodynamic problems. And so they, they mm. did it and we didn't. And but you if, if the M52 had been built according to the specifications mm. that we know about, mm. uh, you don't think it would have achieved its well, design? Well, that would be my personal view. Yeah. Others would have different views on that. No, it, it, it is controversial. I think mm -hmm. the best way of putting it at mm -hmm. the time, the tech, the experts, the uh, technical experts, uh, uh, were not unanimous in relation to what could be done uh, on, in relation to what the M52 could uh, mm. could do. This this is interesting. You said just now that, that you've no doubt that there, there was the ability in the country oh, yes, to yes. do it, mm. and it, it was a matter of presumably of, br of bringing this. Uh, ability, this collective ability together to get the thing off the ground. Now, mm. uh, Scott Crossfield spent some time telling me the ideal situation they had yes. in Muroc yes. just after the war. Yes. That's, that yes. no one, they were stuck right out of the desert and yes. no one interfered with them. Yes. And they yes. had their budget. Yes. And, and, they, and they, they pulled these aeroplanes apart and yes. rebuilt them all yes. on their own. Yes. And everyone did everything. Yes. And this is how this, this is what he puts down the the achievement. The services yes. initially funded them. Mm. I mean, he was more concerned with the Douglas Skyrocket, the D552, mm. although he did fly the X1 mm. as well. Mm. And of course, he went on to the X15, yes. which he was fairly yes. central in designing, yes. which is why yes. apparently well, mm. this is everyone talking, but yes. he says it was such a, a fun airplane. But the other thing also on the M52, I mean, Winkle Brown told me a lot about. You know, he was asked to look at it and, mm. and, and evaluate mm. it and so mm. on, and I think he was possibly going to be nominated as one of the pilots because mm. he's, he's such yes. a short, small chap anyway. Yes, yes. And to sit there with a nose wheel up between yes. your legs is not yes. perhaps the sort of no, viable no. thing. So th there was a, 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 some fairly uh, sound engineering thinking oh, yes. behind this. It yes. wasn't just a political decision. No, no, it was certainly not a political decision. No, no, no def definitely not. Mm. No, it was, uh, uh, it was um, a considered decision on the basis that um, uh, our knowledge uh, both of the aerodynamics, the structural side, uh, and the engine and the intake was uh, pretty uncertain because we had no means of, uh, no internal tests were possible, you see. So it was, uh, there were many question marks uh, on it. And uh, indeed, we had shown ourselves how hazardous the whole business of, uh, um, uh, both here and in America, really, how hazardous the business uh, was. We mentioned Jeffrey de Havilland, Killed uh, Stuart Mulroland, the uh, chap in charge of the flying side in uh, were my opposite number, as it were. Well, the chap who worked in my division in, and did uh, was in charge of the test pilots was killed. Genders, another pilot in the uh, side of the business, was killed. We had uh, 
uh, Red Ezler was killed trying the model, Delta model of the so 707. 707. Mm -hmm. And we had two fatalities during that period at Boston, so on, you know, it was a, it was a hazardous mm -hmm. business. So uh, I don't, although I personally, as you might expect, was on the side of the lobby which uh, felt that it would have been sent, it would have made sense to use all the, all the knowledge and resources we had and go for a manned aircraft near this point. I'm not sure that we would have gone for a rocket aircraft. I think we might have missed that phase out and as a result we would have been later than the Americans of course. Uh, but I think we could have, we could have uh, done it uh, quite a bit earlier than uh, we did the, uh, the uh, experimental aircraft which, which was the percussive lightning. It was called the E something 47. Mm. Anyhow, um, the, the first aircraft we did was the uh, what was in effect uh, what became the uh, prototype of the Lightning. We could have done something earlier than that, but uh, mm. I, I said in my Wright Memorial lecture that we, um, at that time, I think, after the war, we did suffer a period of uh, perhaps a drop in confidence or something, because of course. Uh, in the early stages of the war, and indeed throughout the war, we were quite definitely <laughs> in the forefront, very, very much in the forefront, uh, partly because of all the experience we built up in the Battle of Britain, so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. uh, they were good, the Americans produced, of course, the F, uh, the um, F, what was it, the, um, the, the Mustang. The, the Mustang the was P-51, wasn't it? P-51. The P-51 was a, a very good aeroplane, actually, mm -hmm. and uh, I must say it shook us in terms of the performance it, uh, it gave. Uh, but on balance, uh, I think the Americans would uh, admit that in terms of the First World War, the, the Second World War fighters, mm. uh, we uh, were very much in the lead, really. We it, the yes. From what I've um, learned by talking to other people, I, I think the science of test flying was perhaps first defined properly in this country. Um, a staggering yes. thing that Winkle Brown told me was all those exotic aeroplanes mm. that, that you got from Germany yes. after the war, mm. um, with all their sort of I interesting hardware, mm. the Germans had not sat down mm. and investigated it mm. and looked at it. Not in a, not in a systematic way. No. That, was real, that was due, of course, uh, I think, and uh, I don't know what the pilots would have said, but my own view is it was due to the setting up of the Empire Test Pilot School. Mm. The Empire Test Pilot School was set up in this country, um, when would it be, uh, before the end of the war, I think, mm -hmm. at the end of the war, anyhow. Mm -hmm. And that has always been a source of great, I mean, particularly was at that time, uh, particularly at that time, the generation of pilots who came then out of that were really uh, owed a great deal to the, mm -hmm. whether they went to the Empire Test Power School or not, mm -hmm. because not all of them went through the Empire yeah. Test Power School, most of them did, uh, and uh, it was a great thing. Yes, there's no doubt that the, uh, the British did develop the uh, develop test flying in a, to, a, to a proper, you know, scientific and... Yeah. still very highly re regarded in the States. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You know, a number of them were yes. Dangerous, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. Now, in the States, I, I met two very contrasting opinions about Deltas. The one was a rather jaundiced one from, from Jaeger and Crossfield on, yes, on the, yes. the first one I think they built, the XF-92, yes. which was, yes. uh, from all, by all attempts, an yes. abomination. It hardly, yes. hardly staggered off the ground. Yes. Yes. Right through to uh, Dick Johnson, with whom I spent a day. Mm -hmm.
when he described uh, the whole generation of Convair Deltas, mm. above mm. all the F-102, which he, mm. uh, by all accounts, was a magnificent machine, mm. through mm. to the Hustler and so on. Yes, yes. And um, I'm interested mm. with, uh, in, in, the, in the Delta development in this country, yes. you know, these yes. days of Vulcan and, of course, Concorde. Yes, I presume yes. You, you had quite a lot to do with that. Yes, yes, indeed, yes. Um, could you perhaps talk about yes. that? Yes, okay. Uh, well, now, uh, Delta aircraft, um, uh, it started in a controversial way because uh, the uh, uh, the German scientists in the closing years of the war had uh, established the uh, advantages of sweepback um, from the compressibility point of view, and at the same time they had demonstrated that uh, you could either have sweepback by simply taking a straight-winged aircraft and sweeping the wings back, or by doing a delta-shaped, the delta-shaped. Uh, uh, aircraft uh, being able to do without a tail if, uh, if you wanted to. And um, um, so that uh, um, uh, there were those two alternatives and there was great controversy in the years uh, in immediately after those of us who went to Germany during the closing stages of the war and, and looked around Falkenroder and the other experimental establishments and talked to the German technicians and designers and scientists um, and uh, they developed uh, in this country as everywhere else. Two schools of thought: some who favoured the Delta, and some who favoured uh, swept-wing uh, aircraft. And uh, um, we rapidly moved forward, actually, in this country to uh, um, uh, designing uh, bombers, uh, long-range bombers, on this basis. And uh, you'll remember the, the V bombers, of course, were. Uh, we did decide, and it was very controversial, and I was greatly involved in the, the, the decision to to go both ways. So we did the uh, the Victor, which was a swept-wing aircraft, and the Falcon, which was a Delta. The Valiant was done as a, looked on really as an insurance, because both the Falcon and the uh, Victor, at the time when they were designed and embarked upon, were um, involved quite a gamble, because we hadn't really done all the testing, we had no experience of aircraft of that kind. So uh, there was a controversy and uh, those were the first. We decided actually, because partly because of a controversy, uh, in 1946 or 45 or 46 I think, we decided, um, um, and this was before the Vulcan design had been, uh, had been developed to any extent, uh, nor all the Victor, we decided to do a purely experimental aircraft, which was built by Bolton Paul, and it was done to a, um, a government design, it was an RAE design in effect. Yes. The that was the P111, was it? That, that was, that the, was that the number for it? Uh, I think so. It, it was very sprightly at Farnborough. It had, yes. it had a magnificent control, as well. I would have from Bolton Paul, but... Yeah, okay. And that may be the number. Anyway, it was the yeah. Bolton, well, we, I always thought of it as the Bolton Paul yeah. uh, Delta, because yeah. I had a great deal to do with that, uh, um, uh, because I felt then that the controversy could not be resolved other than by building an aircraft and flying it, uh, because the controversy was very widespread. People said, well, its landing and takeoff characteristics won't be very good for various reasons, which we can go, to, go into if you want to. Um, then there were the there were the people who said the damping, which I've referred to earlier, would not be uh, adequate. Um, and so um, uh, we got approval, actually, to uh, uh, build an experimental aircraft. It was done, it was very well built by Bolton Paul and uh, flown for the first time by an RAE test pilot. 
His name was Bob Smythe, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he was an Empire Test, uh, Empire Test Pilot, Pilot School graduate. He'd become the head of uh, Aeroflight uh, in succession to uh, Winkle Brown. Winkle mm-hmm. Brown left in 1948, uh, 1948. Mm-hmm. Bob Smythe took over and he did the first flight on, on it at Boston Down and I think it was in the summer of, I think it must have been the summer of 1948, maybe 1949. Now uh, we did that as an experimental aircraft and uh, it was very very useful as a, uh, an initial uh, thing to do. It did demonstrate actually that uh, the Delta formula was perfectly all right from the point of view of landing and takeoff and indeed general mm-hmm. flying up to the speeds. Uh, there were a lot of problems and we did a lot of measurements and uh, that was useful. Um, despite the fact that we had done that, um, A.V. Rowe decided that uh, uh, they would, uh, um, in view of the tremendous importance of getting the Vulcan right, that they would do a model of the Vulcan beforehand. And that was the uh, 707, it was called, wasn't it, uh, which was built. And it was simply a model, as near as it could be made, of what the Vulcan was going to be. And uh, that was the one w- uh, in which uh, Ezra was killed in Farnborough. Actually, uh, what happened there was, was yes, it was a feature of, of the Delta. Uh, a Delta aircraft is not the sort of thing to get into a spin, if you can help it. <laughs> um, and that's what happened to Ezra. The aircraft spun mm-hmm. and he couldn't recover. Uh, so uh, that was that. And then and so the, so the Vulcan came to to be, and, uh, and it has proved very good. But there are characteristics about the Delta, which uh, some of the characteristics which the uh, opponents of the Delta um, uh, had drawn attention to are undoubtedly there. Um, the Delta, the a Delta aircraft has, of course, a, a low aspect ratio, and that leads uh, that is primarily what leads to a feature it has that you can get into a condition uh, during the approach uh, during the approach if you uh, allow the attitude allow the angle of instance to get too large you can get into a situation where the thing will just continue to increase the rate of sink and you can't do anything about it and that's what happened to the to the Vulcan in Heathrow when uh, uh, Harry Broadhurst Got, a got out, and the pilot got out, and mm. two members of the crew were killed. It was, um, it was that condition. The he, well, he, he, he sort of almost flared it too steeply, did he? Or, uh, well, it was even higher than the flare point. Yes, it. Um, um, it is this fact that uh, with a Delta, when you do the, the flare, uh, you're a pilot yourself, uh, I used to have a pilot's license, you know uh, yeah. the, the phraseology, the, when you uh, um, do the flare on, a, on an aircraft normally, mm. uh, if you overdo it mm. and you find the rate, you know, you find uh, uh, that you've flared off too high or anything like that, you can open the throttle and go yeah. around again and so on. Now a Delta is not uh, is a bit more critical than that because of the fact that you can get into a condition where uh, you're doing the flare and if, if you feel you, you haven't done enough of it and you continue to get the incidents up you get to a stage eventually where instead of continuing to, to flatten out to a greater extent mm-hmm. it does the opposite 
and, and increase its rate of sink. And you can get that into that condition. And, and you and can't, can't check the sink rate by putting back on the stick like you do. No, we won't check the sink rate in that way. Just no. make it worse. You know, mm. The further back mm. you pull the stick, the more the, the okay. sink rate is. And even at full throttle, you can't stop that. And that can happen to a, a Delta aircraft. And it happened in that case. And, and there have been other occasions, of mm. course, when that has happened. There have been pilots even at altitude. I remember. Um, I, I was about to say who he was, but uh, on reflection I won't because it's a mm. slight reflection. One pilot doing a descent from high altitude and either having forgotten this feature or, or never having fully understood it, he uh, really throttled back, you know, pulled the pole right back and let it settle, knowing that it wouldn't. Uh, that delta, it, it is actually um, not at all easy to properly stall a delta. Mm. Uh, in mm. no, normal aircraft, when you, when you do a stall, the, it's quite obvious things stalls, either wind mm. drops or nose falls away and so on. In the case of a delta, that may not happen, and the aircraft will uh, uh, simply uh, Increase its rate of descent quite rapidly, but still there it is sitting as if it is with with, with normal airflow characteristics. That's right. Yeah, perfectly steady, no wing mm. drop or anything mm. like that, just coming down. And uh, there was a chap who got into that uh, situation, and of course, uh, when the time came to uh, recover, he opened the throttle and pushed the pole forward. <laughs> Nothing happened. The thing just continued down like that. And it requires very positive, very firm action with full forward. In fact, like the recovery, almost like the recovery from a from a spin, except you mm. don't have to have put on full rudder. Mm. But really, stick hard forward, full throttle, and uh, then it gets mm. out. But mm. but the delta does get into that condition. It's because of the fact that you know if you plot the drag of an aircraft against the lift there is a minimum drag mm. position. And the reason for this feature is uh, that uh, the minimum drag speed is rather higher on a Delta than it is on a conventional aircraft, and therefore it's easier to get below it. And when you are below that, if you increase the attitude, the drag gets very much higher, and the lift doesn't increase. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, there you are. Uh, so so uh, that's, that was a bit of a digression in a way, because it wasn't crucial to Delta. After all, the Balkans have been uh, an extremely successful mm. uh, member of the V-Bomber force. Yes. Um, uh, uh, now then, let's go on from that to, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's on the long-range aircraft. Uh, Deltas have been very successful if properly applied to uh, uh, fighter design, as uh, shown by the French uh, Mirage series, mm. of course. Um, and then finally, uh, and I leave the Concorde to the last, because although the Concorde is a Delta, it's a very different thing really. It's, um, the Concorde is uh, uh, a very narrow Delta to start with. Uh, the, the Vulcan, as you know, is uh, almost a right-angled triangle. Mm. The Delta, the Concorde, of course, is a slim, a slim Delta. Also, it has the sharp leading edges of the wings, and the whole um, nature of the flow, of the aerodynamic flow over the Concorde wing is quite different from that mm. over any other. You know about this, there are the, these big vortices which yes, are produced yes. by it. Um, I'm not a theoretical aerodynamicist myself, so I don't uh, pretend to fully understand the precise nature of the flow uh, in, the, in the way the theoretical aerodynamicists do, but it is fundamentally different from a yes, conventional, yes. conventional delta. Can I just f finish on, on the Delta? Yes. yes. Uh, the, uh, one of the uh, advantages I always understood was the fact that you could 
contain the wing surfaces within the mark cone, so-called. Yes. And at the same time, for the required thickness core ratio necessary, you could still have uh, a fairly thick wing yes. for storage. I mean, yes. that presumably is one of the philosophies yes. behind yes, Barkin design. Well, uh, it's, the it's part of the uh, of the Concord uh, uh, philosophy, certainly. Mm. Yes. Yes, that, that, that's uh, that's absolutely mm. right. Yes, that is that is uh, mm. an advantage, really. And indeed, without that advantage. Combined, perhaps no. I think I would say without that advantage, I doubt whether anybody would uh, go for a Delta aircraft. Mm. Really, structurally, it's a very good structural yeah. thing. If it if it's straight to uh, an ordinary Delta like the Vulcan or the Mirage, the uh, Concorde, of course, is such a complex shape that you don't get any advantage out of the um, out of the. Uh, um, delta shape in from the point of view of a structural design, mm. uh, weight and strength and so on. Yeah. And, and also the Vulcan, I believe, was a very good performer. I mean, it was, was supersonic, if you wanted it, if you pushed it. It could go supersonic, yes. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure whether it genuinely did go supersonic. I don't mm. know the evidence. This is only what I've read. Yes. I've seen it rolled. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> well, for the pilot, of course, who's had the really most experience of, of test flying the Balkan is Jimmy Harrison. You know you know Jimmy Harrison, the AD Road test pilot? I'm not quite still sure. Around somewhere, I I think, yeah, he's yeah. certainly still around. Uh, I'm I, not absolutely certain exactly what he yeah. does now. Because um, Rowley Falk is the one I know. Oh, um, I see. Well, yes. Um, no, well, I see. He, I've he, lost touch with him. He's in the Channel Islands now. Is he? But he, he was at Farnborough through the war, wasn't he, as a test pilot? Yes, yes. Rowley Falk was a Farnborough uh, test pilot. Um, uh, just, just questioning whether he went straight to Aguero from. Mm. Uh, not sure about that. Mm. Anyway, he was mm. a test pilot. Mm. You're quite right. Mm. He was a test pilot uh, during this closing stages of the war when we were rushing about Germany, uh, mm. picking up German scientists. Yes, yes. So. I think I'll, I'll mm. try and pop over and see him. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, now, c coming on, on to, to Concorde, were you involved in any way with, with the Concorde yes, design? Uh, yes, uh, yes, the point at which uh, well, I was involved in the, early, in the early days, to some extent, uh, um, in the, by meaning by the early days, the time, the period when the whole conception was beginning to develop, to develop in Farnborough, although I was not at Farnborough at that uh, time, because this was uh, during the mid-1950s when the thinking developed, and by that time I'd first gone to Boston down mm. and then gone to uh, Whitehall for a period as uh, scientific advisor to the Air Ministry and later Director General of Scientific Research in the Ministry of whatever it was at that stage, mm. the Ministry of Aviation still I think at that point. Um, uh, but the point at which I came really actively into the uh, Concorde was just immediately after the signing of the agreement with the French actually. Well no, no sorry, before that. Uh, um, I went back to Farnborough to be the deputy director in uh, 1959, and by that time, uh, the, the early work on the uh, which led to the Concorde had been finished, and we were all pretty confident what it ought to look like. And indeed, in uh, in 1959, we um, um, put a contract out to. Uh, Hawker Sidley and to what was then the Bristol Aeroplane Company to do a design study and that uh, was done and by that time I'd gone to Farnborough to be Deputy Director so uh, 
at that stage I became closely associated with the um, um, working out of the uh, design from the basic concepts in collaboration with Hawke Siddeley and uh, Bristol Aeroplane Company and indeed it was a design competition which uh, I was one of the ones who played a part in weighing up the relative merits and we were at that stage uh, doing a lot of wind tunnel testing and structural testing and indeed it was at that point that we uh, established the big uh, uh, structural test frame to uh, uh, test the structure of the Concorde under the conditions of temperature which apply at IMAC number which was built at Farmer and you can go and see it there if you mm. want it. Very interesting, uh, mm. although you know, it's been the work on it is more or less finished now. Um, so that was that time. And be, partly because of the fact that I've been involved in that way um, during my time as Deputy Director, when the agreement was signed, or soon after the agreement was signed, uh, I was uh, moved to uh, back to Whitehall to become, to occupy a post which is called Deputy Controller for Aircraft R&D. And one function of that post was to be the British Chairman of the uh, um, Anglo-French uh, Technical Subcommittee, which from the government point of view, ran the project in the early stages. And consequently, I was pretty uh, <laughs> deeply involved in the, uh, in the struggles in the early stages to set up the collaborative work on the Concorde. Mm. Um, and I stayed in that sort of position until about 1965 yeah. or 66. Um, uh, now, as far as the Concorde itself was concerned, the very interesting aspect of this was the fact that we uh, uh, two two decisions which were made in this country um, which uh, we which were very good really and that is to to go for the slender delta design because at that time it was very controversial of course it seems obvious now you know what beautiful mm. aeroplane it is and it, mm. it works mm. and it's mm. technically i mean and mm. it's marvelous uh, but at the time it was by no means uh, uh, certain and it was a it was quite a gamble but it was a it was a a good gamble, I think, because it was based on a very large amount of research work and design work and technical testing mm -hmm. and so on. And we went for it, and at that time the Americans were, were convinced that, that was not the right thing to do. And indeed, the, the Boeing design, the design which Boeing were, worked on at that stage and were proposing at the time when we, when we gave a go-ahead to the Concorde, was um, a, an extremely complex um, variable geometry, variable sweepback design. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, we we made the decision in this country, and it was a joint decision between industry and the government, to go for Mach 2 and not Mach 3. There is, this again was very controversial, and we decided to go for Mach 2, the Americans decided to go for Mach 3. So were, we were diametrically different, really. And the facts have shown that we were right. Even if we were even if the Americans were going to design an aircraft for the 1990s, now they would use a slender delta design and they'd go for Mach 2. So <laughs> one of the, the one of the few things we can really say, well, one of well, let's say as far as the Concorde is concerned, it really has been a tremendous technical triumph in every way. Every decision which was made was was right, and every prediction <coughs> about what the aircraft will do has mm. been fulfilled, so technically it's mm. been tremendous. Who, who was the, the chief, uh, was it Kuchelman on that project? Is, is he no, 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 no,
Splendor Delta mm. configuration. And in that respect, Quetil uh, is owed to him, uh, mm. of course. It was a team. There were a number of other people who were very much involved mm. uh, in uh, developing the uh, aerodynamic concepts of the Slender Delta, but there's no doubt that Kuchelman was a leader yeah. in uh, developing that. But as far as the project itself was concerned, of course, it was, uh, it was handed over to it, it was the Bristol Aeroplane Company, which eventually became part of BAC, mm. which took on the job of doing it and uh, it was a tremendous team job. So Sir Archibald Russell was the chief uh, of, on the engineering side. Um, on the government side, uh, Maureen Morgan, of course, eventually mm -hmm. became Sir Maureen Morgan, was the chief man, and I worked directly under him. He was no longer alive. No, he, um, yeah. I'm afraid he died a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were uh, many very capable people in the Royal Aircraft Establishment mm -hmm. and in the company who yes. uh, did tremendous well, did a tremendous job in in really yes. getting the Concorde writing and, and a lot of people on the French side too of yes. course it was yes. very much of a joint because uh, the other big achievement was the the, the, the uh, engine intake control yes, system indeed yes yes um, yes yes that's highly complex and mm. uh, and it worked yes and looking back you see the the great thing about the Concorde which uh, the average layman uh, doesn't recognize, of course, is that um, uh, it was designed, the whole design was set up at a time when no other aircraft had flown supersonic for more than literally, you know, a few minutes at a time, well, not very long anyway. This was an aircraft which was being designed across the Atlantic in, in the low, at the level of safety which is demanded of civil aircraft. Well, this, this, of course, is, is of tremendous significance, mm. isn't it? Because, yes. I mean, your, your safety margins are much yes. narrow on military yes. aircraft. That's right. And furthermore, you see, the, uh, uh, the payload on a supersonic aircraft of that kind is only about 7% of the all-up weight, mm. which means that if you make a mistake, a small mistake in the structure mm. weight or something mm. like that, you can lose half your payload mm. overnight. In actual fact, the, uh, the prediction was that the aircraft would fly at Mach number just above two, uh, that it would carry a hundred passengers across the Atlantic with all the field reserves and so on to cope with any conditions, that its landing and takeoff characteristics would be more or less like existing subsonic aircraft with certain differences which were predicted, and absolutely every one of those predictions has been fulfilled. Mm. Mm. You know, I almost said exactly. Yes. That would be a slight exaggeration because mm -hmm. we got it wrong by two or three percent mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. some things, but uh, but it's uh, no other aircraft has ever quite uh, yeah. done that, and and this is a supersonic aircraft which no one else in the world has done, of course. So it is a uh, quite a truth to the yeah. to, and and leaves no doubt about the quality of uh, British and French engineers and mm -hmm. scientists mm -hmm. technicians. So yeah, yeah. Bit of a digression, but <laughs> no, I, I think this this is very significant because I spent a lot of um, yes. time in the states yes. talking about the XB70. They've mm. got the surviving XB70 at yes. the Air yes. Force Museum, oh, really? yes. and yes. I just walked yes. all over it. Yes, yes. and then I had a long chat yes. with Al White. Yes. He's a North American pilot who was yes. involved in it, yes. and also yes. with a, uh, an Air Force pilot, yes. Ted Sternfeld, yes. who had a, a oh, really? opposite view to our whites. He was an operational man, and yes. he said, really, they were trying to do hmm. go, go ahead too far, hmm. too hmm. quickly. Hmm. I mean, hmm. it, it, it was a mess, really. Hmm. It would never have worked out operationally. Hmm. This is... This is wouldn't it? No, 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 I've not been in touch with The that. technology yes. was just what yes. wasn't there. Yes, yes. Um, mm. At that stage, I was in this 
Whitehall job, BCARD, um, and therefore had to try to advise Healy, Dennis Healy, and the others on uh, the technical characteristics. And I spent a lot of time at that uh, in those days. This goes back to 1963, I think, mm. wasn't it? Mm. 63, 64, perhaps. Um, uh, this is, I'm afraid, because it's well known, of course, that mm. uh, there was a controversy, a wide difference, is your opinion, in the, in the country as a whole, about whether it was sensible to go for the F-111. <coughs> and uh, um, I, of course, and the rest of us, uh, had to try to be absolutely impartial in the technical advice. But the point I uh, was going to say was that uh, the F-111 at that time was uh, in the uh, uh, development stage, it hadn't gone into full production, and it was in deep trouble at the very time when we were considering buying it, having cancelled the TSR-2. The aircraft was in very deep trouble, primarily because of the uh, uh, trouble with the air intake. And I spent a lot of time over at Fort Worth and, and was pushed around between Fort Worth and uh, uh, Secretary for Defence, so was it Secretary for Air Force at that time, who was in fact Harold Brown, who is now the Secretary of Defence. And uh, uh, there was no doubt that they were in deep trouble because they hadn't put enough uh, basic thought and testing and design into the whole intake design for, for the engine. And when we looked at it and got the experts uh, to really take a look at it, it really, not only were they in deep trouble, but it was a, a, a form of trouble which it was going to be very difficult indeed to get out of, because of the basic design they'd use. And eventually they did get out of it, and the British technicians played a major part in doing that, but it was a hell of a struggle. And at the time, actually, I, in the advice that I was giving, I, I well, I might as well admit now, particularly as I'm <laughs> now, um, I'm now le I, it's now more than 10 years since I left the government service, but mm. uh, uh, I was against, personally, against get buying the 111, because that was not the only thing which uh, uh, was in trouble at the time. Uh, the trouble will overcome eventually, I would underline, I mean, you know, uh, there was no question of the aircraft going into service with uh, severe uh, trouble, but at the time when we were considering buying it, the aircraft was in deep trouble on the air intake, there were uh, many troubles in relation to the extremely co complex uh, high lift system on the aircraft. It had uh, one of the most complex systems for leading at flaps, slats, and flaps, which I had seen. And uh, there were strong reasons for putting question marks on it at the time. And uh, I began this bit of the conversation by, uh, uh, in order to underline the fact that uh, the British technicians and scientists played a major part in helping to get rid of the intake troubles, no doubt about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And that's no criticism, of course, of, uh, of general dynamics, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, we've had occasions when we've had help mm -hmm. from, from them, too, in, in other fields. But in mm -hmm. the field of intake design, we really have always been mm. pretty good and at the forefront, and the Concorde, mm -hmm. of course, is a far more sophisticated uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, intake um, uh, than uh, the F-111 was, mm. and, and of course it was. Yeah. Just getting away from specific aircraft now, and almost to, to, to wind up this interview, unless um, you, you feel yes, there's no more, to, more to say, the relationship between engineers like yourself on the ground yes. and, and the pilots. Yes, yes. Uh, this must be a sort of 
fascinating uh, yeah. area to study. Yes. Um, I mean, can you tell, talk a little bit about this, about some of the problems and about some of the sort of harmonious yes. team situations, and yes. also how technology has, has, has changed this from the, the sort of the, the knee pad notebook yes. through to the model yes. 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 Yes, well, that's absolutely, yeah. that's yeah. very interesting and, yeah. uh, and very important. Well, now, uh, during the early period when I was actively involved as a, a flight test chap, um, there's no doubt we we, um, uh, we did develop, I think, and I hope, the, in fact, I'm confident that the pilots, uh, that the test pilots whom we've been talking about would endorse this. Uh, we did actually um, we were very lucky. I, I think partly, perhaps, because of the British characteristic. <laughs> we are reasonably good at getting on because of the informality. And at Farnborough, for example, not only Farnborough, well, at Farnborough in 1947-51 when I was there, they developed um, uh, what I think really was an absolutely magnificent atmosphere between the engineers and scientific people and technical people and the test pilots. Not only the test pilots we had, the RAF test pilots and Royal Navy test pilots we had in Farnborough, uh, but also with the uh, test pilots in industry. There was absolutely a total, complete understanding. And uh, uh, the names we've been talking about, uh, Eric, Eric Brown, uh, Stuart Mulroland, Jock Elliott, both of whom are dead, uh, now uh, John Bogendries, uh, Sammy Roth, who is the Commandant of the Empire, Test pilot school, that all those are uh, serving officer officers. Um, Bob Smythe, I, I mentioned, uh, Jimmy Harrison, who went to A.B. Rose, Ron Eccleston, who unfortunately got killed in the in a Victor accident, and uh, many others, all on the serving serving officer side. And then, of course, Neville Duke, um, Bill Bedford. Beaumont, Rolly Beaumont, uh, Trabshaw, and so on. Uh, many. I didn't, John Derry and John Cunningham, of course, uh, mustn't forget them because they, they are two who are an outstanding example. John Derry, unfortunately, dead, but uh, uh, John Cunningham, who, you know, in a sense, is now, uh, and this is a perhaps uh, way to underline it, he is you know, almost the, the father of the test pilots mm -hmm. now, and uh, never was there a chap who could get on better with uh, engineers or with whom engineers could on mm -hmm. better with than he. But they were, they were all the same, and all very different, absolutely different, and so were the engineers, of course. <coughs> Often we'd have disagreements and troubles. Often they were resolved round the bar. And I, my, the time when I spent, after my founder period, uh, I spent three years uh, as chief superintendent of Boston Down, and there, um, I think, from time to time, there have been problems at Boston because of the fact that Boston has a, a difficult task to do in uh, clearing aircraft for service use. That is, perhaps in a way, that presents more, dif more danger of difficulty between, between pilots and, uh, and engineers. But as far as the period when I was there, the uh, commandant at that time was uh, Alan Wheeler, who now runs the Shuttleworth Trust, and the relationship which developed between he and I has lasted ever since. And the same thing applied down down the line to most of the engineers and uh, most of the uh, of the 
test pilots, crew captain flying chopman, Spencer Ring when I was there was a splendid, splendid chap. Peter Thorne who, and uh, many others actually, of Dickie Fern, uh, Wing Commander Bird, mm. and the same. And, and yeah. this relationship really has developed very well in this country. Now, you asked, uh, how does that go now? Now, I must confess that one of the things which has uh, worried me in recent years <coughs> is the fact that because of the great increase in uh, complexity and uh, use of uh, magnetic tape recorders and uh, uh, so on, the relationship between... Uh, Perhaps you would like a coffee now, would you? Very it's much, about yes. time for you Lovely, to thank you. The relationship between the engineers uh, uh, and the test pilots is perhaps uh, not quite so close. Uh, I, I may, of course, be, uh, uh, be saying that because I myself, uh, for the last for many years now, have uh, become a bit remote from them, although I try to retain the context as much as I possibly can. But I, I think probably the people working now would say that it's more difficult now to keep that uh, very, very close uh, uh, relationship which uh, existed particularly yeah. in the years between the end of the war and about 1955. Could you, could you talk me through a, a, a situation which would perhaps exemplify this relationship, say uh, you mentioned the problems you had on the Swift yes. a little while back, yes. um, you know a, a bug that was on a, on a design and, and uh, you know oh, yes. it was serious yes. and how yes. between you, the steps, yes. you sorted out the problem. Well, out. maybe the, perhaps the Swift would be an example. Just mm -hmm. the, best, the best I can yeah. think of. Let, let's, let's run through that yeah. uh, a bit, because I, <laughs> I do uh, have a vivid recollection of that, because it was a traumatic period. It's no joke to have to turn, to turn down an aeroplane into which so much money had gone. The thing was practically in, in production mm. when we turned it down. So what happened then? Well, uh, we had, we had first come across this uh, wing dropping and tightening in turns before the aircraft came to Boston because we had uh, an arrangement uh, in those days whereby the uh, service test pilots from either Boston or the RE or both would go to the company and this is another example of a good relationship which, were, which existed uh, at all levels and consequently uh, RF test pilots had flown the, uh, um, the aircraft uh, up the company's um, airfield uh, under the direction of uh, Mike Lefkoe and uh, Dave Morgan and uh, we'd all observed uh, this effect but at the time because we were not uh, we, they were simply doing some flying we were not taking any measurements ourselves although we had said we had expressed misgiving about it we hadn't been been able to be emphatic about it. And then the aircraft uh, came, more than one of them, the aircraft came to Boston Down for the formal testing and we began the, the uh, uh, fairly sophisticated, even in those days, the, the year was 1954-55. And uh, um, uh, Boston had developed uh, at that stage a, a pretty methodical and uh, highly developed method of uh, uh, running the thing through a series of tests in which we took measurements. And um, uh, this was being done by, uh, the flying was being done by the so-called A squadron at Boston Down. Um, and they, they, uh, they reported adversely from the... Uh, um, pilot's point of view, and unfortunately the uh, uh, the measurements were showing the adverse effect too. 
But of course, this was a highly controversial issue, whether in fact the thing was bad enough to justify rejection of it. And um, the first stage in this, of course, would be was in, war, it consisted of the arguments between the the engineers who were engaged in the in the actual testing and the pilots, an attempt, the attempts to uh, um, relate the uh, uh, observations which were being made by the recorders with what the pilots were saying. And here, of course, there always is a difficulty. When a pilot says, well, the wing dropped violently, what does that mean? Uh, what does the recorder show? And invariably, when in those circumstances, or frequently, if not invariably, you find that there, there, there always is some, there are differences between what the records show and what the pilot thinks happened. And so that leads to lengthy argument and further retesting, more arguments and so on. But gradually this is a good illustration. Slowly over months of testing which went on then, the impressions of the test pilot worked slowly in until we were quite clear uh, exactly what was happening, why it was happening, and precisely what the magnitude of the effects were. And at that point, they started the argument with the, uh, what you might call the administrators, really, who were the people who put the money in the, uh, in the business. And of course, it was absolutely inevitable. Um, the, the firm, the company, stood to lose a lot, not only directly in money, but in, in prestige. Uh, because however much we might uh, say that, uh, okay, we, we, uh, we, we began to get worried about this early on in the thing, uh, I think the firm were in a very difficult position because you recall this was... Can you put this on? Oh, we can put it down. Is this the pre when the government, um, when the newly elected Labour government uh, had uh, made up their minds they were going to get out to the Concord? You know, the detailed story of actually what happened when Jenkins went over to Paris and I was with him uh, <laughs> uh, on that occasion. Really makes made quite a good story. Mm. Is, that, is that for publication yet or not? Well, I, I would have thought it probably is. I mean, the papers won't be available until 93, will they? So. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. Mm. You, you, might wonder, you might be interested in mm. thinking about it later. Mm. But, uh, mm. Um, there, are, there are many very well, you know. I, to me, it was all fascinating because uh, they're the ones I was happened to be involved in, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they seem to me fascinating. Yeah. They still are, and uh, maybe they'll mm -hmm. be interesting yeah. for us too. Well, I think so. It's a long term, but just immediately, yeah, yeah, the, the, ta the tapes running down on, on, oh, yes. on, on, on the story of the Swiss. Yes. Yes. Um, oh yes. If we could just finish that I one got off. to the yeah. point of saying that we had got to the, the reach, we'd reached the stage where mm. we had made all the measurements fit in with the observations and uh, the pilots, the test pilots, did an absolutely magnificent job, I, mm. you know, beyond admiration, mm. because it was mm. highly dangerous, mm. very dangerous. Uh, I, I just, <laughs> I'm glad that I'd never suffer from sleeplessness, otherwise it really was. Uh, and we got to a stage where we knew what we had to say, and I'd, I'd reconciled myself to the fact that it had to be rejected. And I recall a dreadful meeting in, the, in uh, Alan Wheeler's office uh, on a Friday evening before I was due to go off skiing, actually, when the final decision had to be made, and the very senior uh, Whitehall chaps were there, and the, company, the firm were there, Joe Smith was there, you know, 
and it really was a very expensive, not a, I don't think I finished the sentence, not an expensive, but an involved uh, reputation. And it only, not because there was any real question of anybody having uh, failed to do something which they should. As I said at the beginning, it was just bloody unlucky that uh, the, um, um, uh, the Swift uh, had this uh, characteristic. But, th but at that point, there was nothing which could mm. be done about mm. it, really. And uh, finally, the de decision was uh, made to, to to reject it. And I, I believe myself it is the right one. It was the right one. I'm sure it was, really. Mm. <coughs> but in general terms, you said just now a pilot would report a sudden wing drop. <coughs> yes. Now. The pilot says it's a sudden wind, wing drop. Sudden. You you want to know what that meaning sudden has. Mm -hmm. In other words, yes. how many degrees a second yes. is and the aircraft dropping? Sure, and that precisely what speed it happened and what yeah. was the attitude of the aircraft mm -hmm. in uh, those mm -hmm. conditions and what was he doing with his controls. Yeah. This is a very important part of it. Uh, you see, that's astonishing. Good example about this is what when you, uh, if you. Uh, when one is doing uh, um, tests on the spinning characteristics of an aircraft, um, it's astonishing how frequently you get, even from really the, the best and most experienced test pilots, not quite the right impression of what they actually did with the stick and the rudder you know, during the crucial moment in the recovery. And the only way of doing that is to measure it. And the great thing, I think the great thing which, which was done in this country, in the 19, uh, immediately after the war really, was to really get the pilots and the engineers to work together so that the pilots understood clearly, fully, you know, not just superficial understanding, the uh, numbers which were coming out of the recording equipment and the, and the, the engineers and uh, nearly all the chaps who were the engineers and technical people, the scientists who were working in Foundry and Aerofight uh, during those times, during those days, were pilots themselves. Some of them very good pilots, actually. Maureen Morgan himself was a very good pilot. Uh, Joe Lyons, Di Morris. Uh, um, I was the chap who wasn't a good pilot because I, I was very bad at it. But of course, you know, you had to care what one, one went on trying. Mm -hmm. and we'd, we'h uh, so that was a great thing. 